Okay, we've been looking through First um, John, and we're going to continue with that this morning. Just ask you to turn in your Bibles to First John, it's chapter two, and I'm going to read from verse 15. So it's the first letter of John. It's chapter two, and it's from verse 15. And we read, John says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. Thank God for his word. Let's just come and pray. And Father, we want to thank you for your word and for the direction it gives us about the things that really should matter, that really should come first in our lives. We pray that you'll teach us through your word today and teach us in a way that leads us not just to understand better, but to live in a way that that fits with who you've called us to be as your people. Father, just speak to each of our hearts now in Jesus' name. Amen. Last Saturday, I had the privilege of officiating at the marriage of someone who was a a young boy in the the church in Lerwick when I was the the pastor there. And both he and his his bride, they're actually, they're now lawyers working in Edinburgh. And I actually found out later that there were actually 24 young lawyers at this wedding. And so, of course, I I couldn't resist the temptation of telling a lawyer joke, which I enjoyed. I don't know about everybody else. But during his speech anyway, he suggested that he might have dug out a few preacher jokes. I told them that I I knew them all, but thinking about it, it motivated me this week just to do a bit of an internet Search. And what caught my attention, though, wasn't so much jokes, but it was an article from a Christian magazine that asked preachers if they would share some interesting responses they'd had to their preaching. And here are just a few actual responses. First, one person who said to their pastor on the way out the door, the Lord cured me of insomnia during the sermon. Then a pastor who shared that he had a lady in his congregation who told me after every sermon, just keep trying. (laughs) Another pastor was posed this question by a member of his church during after-church refreshments. Did you train for the ministry? And then, did you finish your training? Then the final one, would you like me to tell, to tell you how many times you said, um, during this morning's sermon? Now, that's just a selection. There are many more. But, you know, it made me think, and I will bear it in mind, that having been told previously by someone I love very dearly, that my recaps and introductions are inclined to be wordy, I will try and keep things a bit briefer than normal. So let me briefly remind you then of the situation into which John wrote this letter. And it was one where a group of false teachers 
had infiltrated the church. Now, if you try and sum up their false teaching in a paragraph, its main tenet was that they valued experience over teaching, over doctrine. They said that, that we have had an experience of God, and therefore because of this now have a knowledge of God that is unparalleled. And if you come to us, if you follow our lead, if you do what we tell you to do, you can know the same kind of experience of the Lord. And don't worry about the Bible. Don't worry about all that repentance and holiness and discipleship stuff. Don't worry about that. Just come to us. Be with us. Be part of our in-group, our little gang. And you will experience more of God then than you can possibly imagine. Now this apparently led some people those whose faith was based on the, the teaching of the Bible and the teaching of the apostles, it led someone to doubt. Because they, they thought and said, you know, my experience isn't what these people claim theirs to be. So am I really then a Christian? Or if I am, am I, because of my lack of some kind of experience, am I just a, a low grade kind of inferior, spiritually impoverished believer. John wrote, in part, to reassure these people. But he also wrote to alert others, others who were being influenced and misled by these teachers, to alert them to the fact that their experience was not what was being claimed. Rather, it was a falsehood. It was a delusion, more or less devilishly, inspired. And what John then goes on to tell us in chapter 2 from verse 3 on, what he goes on to tell us is that we can test, we can tell the genuine from the false. How can we do that? Well, there are two main kinds of types of test of the, the things of faith. One test, one type is to do with experience and emotion. That's what it focuses on, without much thought about the content of what's being shared. The other is to do with facts and hard evidence, including the evidence of what this claimed experience actually produces in someone's life in terms of lasting spiritual fruit. Now, rightly and unsurprisingly, John went for the second of these two tests. Not because he thought spiritual experience wasn't important, because John certainly did see spiritual experience as important, but because he knew that experience has to be based upon, has to emerge out of a foundation of truth and hard evidence that can be tested. Where what we claim is measured not by the extravagance, vehemence, or the enthusiasm of our claims, but rather by the fact that it lines up with biblical truth and that it leads to spiritual fruit. Well, John outlines three of these tests for us in, in chapter 2, and, and last time we, we looked at two of these tests. The first in verse 3 being the test of obedience. The test of obedience, he says, we know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. And what this is, is saying 
is that if we have come to know a holy and a sinless God, the God of the Bible, then that then should show itself in our lives. That should show itself, above all, in our desire to live a life that pleases God, to live a life of obedience to God. Not a perfect life, we're not saying that, that's beyond us in this life, in this body of flesh. But our heart's desire, though, should be to live a life of obedience. That's the first test of our faith. The other test we looked at last time was the test of love, verse 9 and 10. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. Now, again, we could say a lot here, and we actually did last time, but let's limit ourselves here to saying that love is indeed the dead giveaway. Because if someone is not able to love the unlovely, if in their pride they think of themselves and they put themselves above others, well then no matter what they might claim to know of God, the reality is that they know nothing of him. Because you see, in a very real sense, love is the heart of God. Well, if we do not have love, if we do not have God's heart, then how can we know God? Now, that was as far as we got last time. So what I want us to look at this morning is the third and final test of someone's claimed spiritual experience. That is in verse 15 to 17 that we read, the test of values. The test, that is, of what really is important for us in life, of what it is that comes first for us, of what our passions and our priorities actually really are. As it says here in 1 John, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Now, I would suggest to you here that there is a, a very important question that underlies what's being said here. That is the question of worldliness, indeed of, of just what is worldliness, and seeking to get an answer to this question and then to live our lives in the light of that answer has led believers into all sorts of extremes down through history and right up to the present day. For instance, the extreme of Phariseeism. Because you see, what, what the Pharisees were were essentially men who decided that the essence of worldliness lay in places that you went to, people who you mix with, things that contaminated you, and in some way you had to separate yourself from. So for them then, worldliness was about things external to you. Worldliness was about things on the outside that you had to stop getting in and affecting you. 
And the way that they, they went about combating this was they built up a wall of legalism. They built up a, an outer kind of hedge of never-ending rules and regulations that was all designed to keep the world, to keep its people, its places, its things, to keep them all at bay. And you know, I will remember coming up against this in a, a very marked way during my first ministry. For I went uh, along one day to visit a lady who was one of the long-established church members, and we were in conversation together. And even today, I still feel a bit amazed as I think of it, about what she shared with me. For what she told me was that she would not in any circumstances go to the cinema to watch a film. Even if it was a Disney cartoon, she would not go. But that in her own home, on her own TV screen, she would feel comfortable watching any film she wanted. So you see, for her, worldliness wasn't about the film itself. It wasn't about the message it contained. It wasn't about the way that this might then affect your thinking and your attitudes. And so because of that, your behavior. No, worldliness for her was about the places you go to, the people you mix with and rub shoulders with. And so she stayed apart from the world as she saw it. Now, in many ways, this lady was a very sincere Christian. I want to make that clear. The only trouble was that she had no meaningful, helpful contact with any non-Christian people. And so she had no opportunity to influence, no opportunity to share Christ, no opportunity to ever win for Christ, those who might have been affected by at least part of the sincerity of her witness. Another extreme reaction that the question of worldliness can lead to is the extreme of asceticism. Now, don't be put off by the unusual word, because basically what it means is that people thinking that for you to enjoy something, if you enjoy it, then it must be worldly. It must be dangerous. It must be bad. And therefore, these things, whatever you enjoy, must be vigorously rejected. Now, perhaps more so in the past than now, this has led Christians to have some very peculiar and negative attitudes to things like sex, food, or anything to do in any way with pleasure or enjoyment. And so because of this, People have at times starved themselves. They've gone around in rags. They've worn hair shirts. They've beat their own body, all as a symbol, a sign of their rejection of the world. Their rejection of worldliness. Well, I want to say just in response to that, I think that we live today in a, a pleasure-centered, self-centered, obsessed society. And so because of that, I'm all for Christians today living a simpler more moderate life. And I'm all for it, at least in principle, things like fasting for a period as a means of getting focused and enable us to, to devote time to serious, single-minded prayer. But when we get the idea that by rejecting things we enjoy, we automatically become more virtuous and less worldly, and that because of this, that makes God in some way more kindly disposed to us, more likely to answer our prayers. 
When somebody thinks in that way, and people have done through the years, then their thinking is totally distorted. And in fact, what it's doing is, it's leading them to live a very unbiblical, fleshly, works-oriented Christian lifestyle. It's actually leading them to live almost the very life that they are rejecting. And they imagine that their righteousness, as they imagine that their righteousness or their degree of righteousness is being determined by what we do or what we don't do. But you know, to the contrary, the Bible is very clear that actually the enjoyment of the good things of this world is part of God's plan for his people. Paul in 1 Timothy 4.4, he says, for everything, he says, God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, if we acknowledge God as we take it. Now, of course, excess of good things, gluttony, drunkenness, etc., this the Bible clearly stands against, but not the enjoyment of good things. But let me here just make it clear if I haven't done so already. I'm not in any way against somebody adopting a simple lifestyle. Not against that. Say as a, a response, a reaction to the poverty and, and need in much of our world. I'm not against it. But what I am against is someone imagining that by doing that, that this in itself makes them more spiritual and less worldly. I'm against that. The third reaction I want to mention, third extreme, sorry, that I see is a, an overreaction to the question of worldliness and what worldliness is, is the extreme of monasticism. Now, your response to that might be, but what's that got to do, really, with present-day Christianity? Okay, there might be the, the old monastery scattered about today, but surely, listen, the heyday of the monastic movement is now so long past as to be almost irrelevant. You know, I'm not so sure that that's the case. And someone like John Stott, he argued that he saw the spirit of monasticism which he defines as the idea that withdrawal from the world, that is from the society of men, will somehow make us more spiritual, less worldly. He sees this, he says, as alive and kicking in what he calls rabbit hole Christianity. And I actually came across a pretty extreme example of this. When as the, the pastor at one time of a Charlotte Chapel uh, church plant, I was invited one Sunday evening to speak at their over-50s group. At the end of the night, the man who was leading the group came up to me and said how good it was to hear what was happening in a place like Wester Hills, where I was the pastor. And then he started just to, to reminisce with me. And what he told me was that he'd basically been born and brought up in Charlotte Chapel. But as a child and as a young person, apart from venturing out to school, all his life had revolved around events and activities there. Never did anything else. Then as an adult, this carried on. He married someone from the youth fellowship. And apart from going to work, the rest of his life revolved around church activities. He really didn't have any other friends or to do with anything or anybody outside of his Charlotte Chapel 
connections. I would say to you, that is extreme rabbit hole Christianity. Somebody who just hops about from one Christian burrow to another. And again, who because of that cannot have any real and meaningful contact contact with non-Christians. That maybe challenges a lot of us. I don't know. It certainly challenges me, though. That we can get so drawn into, so caught up in church life, so much a part of a Christian subculture, that in a perverse way by doing that, it actually cuts us off from the world that the church is supposed to be equipping us to reach and to serve. But you know, the real danger here is when we do this deliberately. The real danger is when we withdraw from the world because we think that it makes us more spiritual, when this is actually an expression of a desire not to be worldly. Because when this is the case, as is true in all the different categories we've looked at, we really are totally missing the point. And one writer, John White, he would actually argue that this is not by accident. But he would argue rather that these three extremes we've looked at are all part of the devil's deliberate strategy in this area of getting us to strain at gnats and yet swallow camels, of getting us to major on minors, and in so doing, making us avoid, maybe even with our own subconscious cooperation, coming face to face with what worldliness is really all about. Because, you see, I would argue that none of the different extremes that we've looked at equates to worldliness as the Bible understands it. Some do contain some truth, an element of truth, partial truth. For instance, an example, staying away from certain people and places and things might be part of what we need to do if we are to be spiritual rather than worldly Christians. But what then, you might ask, is worldliness? Well, a key text for me is John 17, 15 and 16 where Jesus there prayed and said, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. So you see, we're not to be taken out of the world, but we are to be in the world. However, We are not to be of the world. Now, you see, what this seems to suggest to me, if we're to be in the world, is that essentially worldliness is not something geographic. That it's not about places or people or or proximity to certain things. No, if we are to be in and yet not of the world, then surely this suggests that worldliness must be about something within. Worldliness must be about an inner attitude, an attitude of the heart, of the mind, and the spirit. And I believe David Watson is right when he ties this together with the key biblical inner attitude that we have to seek. And that is, Jesus is Lord. And he says, Whatever Jesus is not Lord of 
is for us worldly. And John White, again, he develops this a little bit when he defines worldliness as legitimate desires pursued to the point of idolatry. Now, this isn't maybe as as neat and tidy as some of us would maybe like it to be, and at times this can mean different things for different people. But this is, I believe, the essence of worldliness. And this is what John is getting at here in 1 John 2, 15 to 17. That when the value we we place on things, on our desires, when these take Jesus' place, when these take first place in our lives, when these things basically become idols for us, that is when we are worldly. And here he describes how this happens. He talks of the the cravings of the flesh. Now, actually, in older translations, this was translated lusts of the flesh. And because of that, was almost exclusively linked with sexual sin. That's actually inaccurate and unhelpful. Because what John is actually talking about here is every desire that comes from our physical nature that's taken to excess. The kind of worldliness that's basically about indulging our bodies. Then he goes on to talk about the lust of the eyes. And again, this isn't, I believe, simply a, a reference to sexual sin, say to something like pornography. No, rather, I believe this is a reference to covetousness in the very widest sense. It's a reference to that attitude to life where someone's desire for money and power and things and prestige has reached the point where that desire for more and more has pushed Jesus out of his position of lordship in their life. Finally, John goes on to talk of this people then boasting of what he has and does. And what this refers to is is someone who becomes so caught up in the worldliness, who becomes so captivated by their possessions that they don't realize anymore that this is wrong, that it's something to be ashamed of. And so they actually boast of it. They don't try and hide it. And Roy Clements, I think, sums this up wonderfully when he says, that is the love of the world that John is talking about. It means to give the world your heart. It means to put the world at the center of your affections. As John makes clear, people who do that give themselves away. For no matter how religious they might seem, no matter what extravagant claims of spirituality they might make, if they love the world, if that's first for them, the love of the Father is not really in them, actively at least. Because the world and its desires pass away. But the man who does the will of God lives forever. You see, that's how it was. For these false teachers that that John faced. They claimed to have a great spiritual experience. They claimed that they knew God as no one else did or ever had. But the things that they valued. The things they put before God. Showed they didn't really know God at all. And I remember something similar being shared with me by a friend. It was a friend who went to hear a a well-known speaker. And this speaker was someone who had the reputation 
for just saying it as it is. And this speaker on that night spoke strongly against young married couples who he said are so focused on their own lives and their own needs that they held back their resources from the kingdom of God. Now, my friend was under conviction. At least he was, until he saw the speaker drive away in a brand new sports car. Now, that speaker might have been right in the thrust of his message. He might have been. But the fact that his own life seemed totally at odds with it, the fact that his values seem to suggest to my friend a worldly spirit made his message made his message null and void. I hope you've got it. People, places, things might be an expression of our worldliness, but they are not in themselves what worldliness is actually about. No, worldliness is an inner condition. It's a condition of the heart, a condition of the mind, of the spirit, that then reveals itself in what we then put first, in what our lives declare we value most of all. The real question is, is Jesus Lord? Lord of your heart. And so, Lord of your life, I pray we can say that Jesus is Lord for us today. Let's come and pray. Father, we just want to thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge that it brings to us. Thank you for the truth that again and again is revealed and that convicts us. Father, help us to search our hearts, not just to deal with your, might, your word superficially, but to search your heart, our hearts, that we may truly be people who live with Jesus as Lord. This we pray in your name. Amen.